0: This is the Orville Christian Church podcast. Each week, you'll find content that helps you take your next step closer to Jesus. Join us online at orville.church slash live. Merry Christmas. Christmas. I love Christmas. I love the food. And that's it. See you guys. No, uh, I love... I love a lot of things about Christmas. I love the extra time with family and friends. I love The music, so long as it's after Thanksgiving, if you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, that's another sermon message for you. Uh, But most importantly, I love the Christmas story, and I'm not talking about the one with Ralphie and the BB gun. I'm talking about the one where Jesus came to earth to be born as a baby, live a sinless and perfect life, and ultimately die so that we might have life with him. It's a powerful story with a humble beginning. The Savior of the world, God in flesh, came to be born. But you know something that I can't stand about Christmas is I can't stand when tradition and commercialization trumps the accuracy of Scripture. One of the biggest culprits of this is what we know as the nativity scene. Maybe some of you have this in your house like I have in mind and the different elements. You've got the baby. He was obviously there during uh, the birth of him. Um, <laughs> you've got Mary and Joseph. You've got the animals that inevitably played into the chaos of that night. You've got the shepherds who were in the fields at watch and were invited to witness what was happening. But what you shouldn't have is you shouldn't have the wise men. The wise men weren't there that night. We know in Scripture that they weren't there for two years later. They didn't come to a manger. They came to a house. It's one of the things that drives me the most crazy. When I was a kid, we had a little nativity set made out of wood, and I would take the three wise men, and I would put them in a different room in the house to signify that they're still on their journey, right? Right? I was talking to my good friend Kelsey Klein about this this past week, and she was telling me a story of when her nephew was born. Her parents bought her nephew a kid's nativity scene. I said, okay, that's kind of cool. She said, but they did something interesting. They took the, the wise men out of the nativity scene before they gave it to him." Well, that's interesting. I've not heard that before. And she said, I didn't think much of it until two years later, I caught my parents mailing the wise men to my nephew. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's great parenting. A couple of weeks ago, I gave uh, our middle school and high school students the Christmas quiz. I've given the same quiz now four years in a row. I haven't changed the wording once. And I always tell them there will be a prize if you get all of them correctly. And in four years, no student or adult has ever gotten the Christmas quiz completely correct. And one of the questions on the quiz is how many wise men were there? And inevitably, the students wrote down, most of the students wrote down three. And when I said that scripture doesn't say how many there are, One student said, well, that's not right. The movies always show three. I couldn't help but laugh. But then I thought, well, where in the world did we even get the number three from? And then I was thinking, well, maybe it has to do with the gifts. There's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you're not going to greet the savior of the world, this king of the Jews, without bringing a gift, right? So there had to be three. But in reality, scripture doesn't say there could have been three, there could have been 10, or even 50 wise men. We just don't know. However, the wise men, however many there were, still had an important role in part of the story. They left their cities and countries to come in search of a savior in order to do what? To worship. And that's what today's message is going to be all about. We're going to see what we can learn about worship from the wise men today as we continue our Thrill of Hope series. Today we're going to be spending a majority of our time in Matthew chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there now. If you're in the building and you don't have a Bible and you want one, the Bible in the chair in front of you is our gift to you. If you're watching online, first off, welcome. We are glad that you're here and thankful that you are a part of this church. Uh, Go ahead and download the YouVersion Bible app if you haven't. It's a great way to keep God's Word in your pocket and accessible at all times. So let's go ahead and, and jump in. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We'll just start with verses 1 and 2. And it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magiets, the wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, if we're going to be looking at the wise men, we need to know the truth about them. For instance, we already know that there might not have just been three. But for another example, why do we think that they are from the Orient? Well, maybe one reason is the old song, We Three Kings, that goes something like this. We three kings of Orient are there. We traverse afar, field and fountain, more and mountain, following yonder star. I'm always thrilled when the music works, so I don't have to sing it. That is not one of my gifts. But the song We Three Kings, right? It starts out, it says, We Three Kings, that's wrong. Of Orient are, that's wrong right the the bible doesn't say they're from the orient it says they're from the east so someone a long time ago assumed that if they're from the east or the orient that means asia but that would be like somebody coming from new york to orville and they're saying hey i'm from out east and you're thinking cool you're from china That's just that's not the way that it works scholars best guess is that they were from Persia, or what is known today as modern day Iraq and Iran, if we have a map of that. Yep. So this is most likely the area that they were from, not necessarily from the Orient. But the greatest myth of all is that these wise men who came to visit Jesus would have been welcomed and honored. Maybe in their own land, because they were considered nobility, but not in the land that Jesus was born. For starters, they were foreigners. And foreigners were thought of literally as, as dogs. And they were treated like animals. Today, we think of the wise men as stately and respected. Most nativity scenes, you see, they have robes and fancy hats and great riches. But to the people of Jesus' day, the wise men would have been greeted with great suspicion. Simply put, the wise men were outsiders, people who would be seen as having no place in God's story. And that's really the first truth of what we can learn about worship through the wise men. And that is that God welcomes everyone to worship him. God never turns anyone who humbly comes before him away. God even told the shepherds the good news first, and they were definitely considered outcasts in their day and age. Don't miss this. God wants everyone, the outsiders, the insiders, the sideways, whatever, to worship him and come to know him. So here's the question. Why did the wise man, an irreligious outsider, plays such an important part in the Christmas story. Well, Matthew says in just a few words that the wise men came from the East asking, where is this baby? We are on a pilgrimage to worship him. And the wise men remind us that we are all on a pilgrimage to worship. We are all looking for something to worship. And I know that's weird in the 21st century to, to think about uh, but that's really the, uh, still a very viable truth. We are all on a pilgrimage to worship as something. Pastor and author Louis Giglio once said, Worship is our response to what we value most. Take a minute and, and think about that. Worship is our response to what we value most. For the wise men, initially, they valued this, this star, this astrological observation that they had got them excited and got them going on their journey. But I believe as the journey progressed, they began to really value uh, this infant who is prophesied to be the king of the Jews, the savior of the world. So let me ask you, what or who is your object of worship? For some of you, maybe it's money. Money can be uh, such a divisive and finicky thing. It can be used for such good, so much good, but it can also quickly become used as a false god, as a way to depend on your own strength, an object uh, that the pursuit of could make you uh, neglect your family, your spiritual health, uh, and even your, your morals and ethics. But here's the deal. I definitely think that the ability to make money is a gift. It's not one that I possess, but I do think it is a gift. And if you have that gift, don't let it consume you. Instead, use it to develop resource, that part of your skill, to build the kingdom of God. The wise men were men of wealth and status, but they also understood what it means to sacrifice and to give. Maybe another object of worship for you is your possessions. You've worked hard to uh, amass a great array of, of things. When the new iPhone comes out, you have to have it. When that new pickup truck is released, you trade in your perfectly good one to get it. Maybe you want a nicer house or you want a bigger TV or you want a new kitchen with an island in it. Well, the the pursuit of things can be just as bad as the pursuit of money. I know when I really want something, I'll save a picture of it. I'll favorite it in my phone and I'll look at it and save until I can afford it. When I, I purchase my now wife's engagement ring, I saved a picture of it in February. I didn't buy it till November and ask her until December. But that that month in between where I had the ring and I, I hadn't given it to her, I was showing everyone. I was like, look at this shiny thing I bought. Isn't this awesome? But worship is our response to what we value most. One more thing. Maybe the thing that you value the most is yourself. This can be a, a strange concept, but think about the last time that you saw a photo that you were in. Who, who's the first person that you look for? It's always going to be yourself. You want to see how good you look. If you've noticed in, in gyms, they always have mirrors all around. And don't tell me that it's for you to check your form because nobody does that, right? We can be consumed with ourselves and worship is your response to what we value most. We're all wired to worship, respond, and react to what we value. So I want you to really think about it. What do you value most? And what or who is your object of worship? David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address And said this, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he explains he said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and you will never feel like you are enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need more power over others to numb your own fear. And if you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he finishes, he says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are not evil or or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Wallace recognized the truth. Everybody worships, churchgoers and non-churchgoers. We all worship, and it's usually unconscious. Just like the wise men, we are all on a quest or a pilgrimage to worship something. And if you don't choose it intentionally, it will be chosen by default. We were born with a, with a craving, with a gravitational pull towards worship. We are hardwired to worship. The question is, what will receive our worship? Getting back to Scripture, the wise men's journey led them to Jerusalem and to Herod, King Herod. We're jumping back in for verses 3 through 7. Scripture says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born, in Bethlehem. In Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Then Herod called the magi, the wise men, secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, if you don't know anything about Herod, here's what he valued most. Power, prosperity, and pleasure. I'm a good preacher. I made all of them start with a P. Power, prosperity, and pleasure. That's what King Herod worshipped, and he didn't worship anything more than he worshipped himself. He even built an extremely, uh, extraordinarily lavish palace. Looked something maybe like like this— it was this huge mountaintop fortress, and it was seen as, as the, the pinnacle of living, of extravagant living. And he would respond in any way necessary to protect his power, prosperity, and his pleasure. This was the guy who felt so threatened by his two sons that he had them murdered just so he could protect his own seat. It was clear what Herod worshiped. But then there came news, there came word that there's this baby. And his name was Jesus. And these wise men from an important land were calling him King of the Jews. Well, that's not going to sit right with Herod because Herod wants to be king. And at times, we too can act like Herod, can't we? We want to be king. We want to be in control. We want to be the one that is in charge of our own lives. And maybe for you, the idea of Jesus being the ruler, the one that is in the driving seat, can be stressful and frustrating. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Christopher Harley about how big of a decision it is to accept Jesus, not just as your savior, but as your Lord, as the one who will forever be in charge of your life. And when you accept Christ, you're making the statement that essentially, that God, I'm ready for you to be in control. You see, we all want to be saved and we all want to go to heaven, But we sometimes miss out on all that goes into that. When you say the good confession before you're baptized, you're saying that you accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You repeat the confession, you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept Him as my Lord and as my Savior. We often focus on what God can give us. We often focus on the freedom that He offers, that we miss out on the, the fact that, like Paul says, we are slaves to Christ. And when you accept Jesus to be your Savior, you are accepting Him to be Lord. And that's a big decision. When Zachary, Christopher's his son, A couple years ago, he was contemplating, am I ready to be saved or not? He made the statement, I'm just not ready to let God be the boss yet. And that's a real and honest answer, and maybe that's where you are today as well. Maybe you're not ready to let God be the boss. I get that. I understand that. But I want to challenge you to not sit in that. I want to challenge you to to get up and to take your next step for Christ. Maybe you have a decision that you need to make for him today. And I get that it can be daunting. It can be scary. But like Zachary, when Zachary was ready to make that decision, he came back to his dad and he started the conversation by saying, I'm ready to let God be in control. And that's what it's all about. I, I'm proud of Zachary for making that decision. And I want to challenge you, if you've not made that decision, to make a similar one. You can make it today. That would be awesome. Or, or you can even make it during our, our Christmas Eve services later this week. And what an awesome act of service and a gift to God. than dedicating your life to Him around the same time that God gave us the gift of His Son. Here's the thing, that when God becomes the ruler of your life, he is the one that you worship. It's no longer the things of this world. It's not a bottle or, or a drink. It's not pornography or the use of credit cards. It's not vacations or work or your kids or even exercise. We would never probably call them gods, but when you return to them day after day, that is exactly what they become because worship is your response to what you value most. And friends, that needs to be God. But that's why this O holy night has changed so many lives. It causes us to decide, what do I value most, and how will I respond to it? Let's jump back into Scripture one more time. This is verses 9 through 11. And it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him." They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The final truth that the wise men teach us about worship is that worship requires submission. Worship requires submission. We submit ourselves to whatever we worship, we bow down to the things that we value. The wise men were humble and submissive in their worship of the king. They gave gifts and offerings. They bent their knee, and they were overjoyed about it. This is a true picture of worship. This is something that we can learn from. This is something that we should emulate. God is deserving of everything that we have, most of all our worship Let me ask one more time. What are you bowing down to? What are you submitting to? And how are you going to choose to respond to the child who was born on this oh holy night so many years ago? Put yourself into the story. Put yourself in the shoes of the wise men. Jesus is present and alive as much today as he was 2,000 years ago. Are you going to choose to worship him Or will you choose to worship the things of this world? Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 through 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every knee tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, whether we do so now in this life, or when Jesus returns, every knee, like the wise men, will bow to worship the King. We will all acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, and I cannot wait for that day. But what about right now? Will you choose to make him not just the Savior, but the Lord and ruler of your life? Will you come before him with an overjoyed and submissive spirit? Or will you continue to live unconsciously, pursuing the things by default that do not matter? I want to challenge you and invite you to worship the king. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for that old holy night 2,000 years ago when your son was born, that we might have life through him. I'm thankful for what his life meant and still means. God, thank you for your sacrifice. God, I pray that we can humbly come before you with worship, worship that is pleasing to you. God, help us, encourage us, and strengthen us to pursue and worship you rather than the things of this world. God, let our lives be a testimony for you, for your goodness, your grace, your truth, and your love that you have offered us thank you for who you are and for the love that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.